Romans, chapter 7, verse 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you can keep your Bibles out. Um, it's a complicated passage. Actually, um, uh, some of it is hotly debated. And so, God uh, recommend that you take your Bibles out, read it, uh, go through it with me, but then also take it home and, and read it on your own and see if this is what God has, uh, is, is saying. But let's pray for God's help that He can speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for these words. Lord, may these words bring us life. Uh, may these words remind us of who we are, that we might look to you and draw our power from you and speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was this uh, minor league baseball uh, team manager who was disgusted with the midfielders, the center, center fielders' uh, uh, performance. And so in the middle of the game, he got fed up and so he ran out to the pitch and he put the guy in the dugout and he took the position himself. 
thinking that you could do a better job. The first ball that came, unfortunately, it sort of came and hit the ground and took a bad bounce and it hit it right in the chin. And the second ball came in its way and it was a high fly ball, an easy one to catch, except that the sun was right in his eyes and he sort of lost it. In his forehead. The third ball came straight at him. Should have been able to catch it, but he couldn't. It sort of bounced off of his arm. And so he was furious and he was humiliated. And so he called another timeout. He went straight out, uh, went back to the dugout and saw the midfielder. He grabbed him by the uniform and yelled, You idiot, you've got the center field so messed up that even I can't fix it. We tend to blame other people when things go wrong, don't we? And when it comes to sin, we blame a lot of people for our sin, including God. Sometimes we blame God and God's law for the things that we have done wrong. The thing is, when the law came, it judged us, and it condemned us, it sentenced us to death. Uh, does that mean that the law is sinful? That the law is bad? That's the question he's asking in verse 7. Is the law sinful? Again, the answer, as you've seen, is by no means. Of course not. No, 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 no. The law is good. The law is good because it reveals something about us. It reveals what the nature of sin is. If you dig deeper, it reveals to us what sin is. And secondly, it also reveals our helplessness, our utter sinfulness in front of God. And it drives us to God. It is true. And it is a good thing that God has given to us. But even as we become Christian, even as we turn to Jesus, it doesn't mean that we'll be free from the power of sin completely. Paul tells us actually we'll struggle with our sin for the rest of our lives. Until Jesus calls us home before he comes back. So let's take a look at this um, text. I mean, it's a frustrating thing to struggle with sin, but it is produced in so many ways. But let's go back to the question. How can something that condemns us be good? Verse 7. Paul says, God's commandments are good because it reveals the nature of sin. Verse 7. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. But yeah, what's he talking about here? I would not have known what sin was. He, he, he quotes covetousness, right? Ten Commandments. Does he not? Does he really say? Is he really saying that I didn't know what covetousness was or that it was bad? Is he saying that? I don't think so. Right? Covetousness, you know, the, the intense desire for the thing that somebody else has. But we all know that that's kind of a bad thing. It's not a good quality in us, is it? No, I think what he's saying is that he found something deeper, something that, um, what, what sin is when the commandment came. He found out what happens to his heart, and he gained an insight into nature of sin. I think that is what he's saying. Take a look at verse 8. He says, you know, apart from the law, he's, his sin was dead. I think what he means is, when he didn't... Uh, consider the seriousness of sin, or he didn't consider uh, obedience to sin as a serious matter, he thought that sin was dead in him, that sin was not a problem. Once I was alive apart from the law, he thought he was fine. He, he, 
wasn't enslaved to anything. But then, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. It sprang to life. Uh, and he, uh, when, when he started to take the commandment seriously, and he started to obey, he wanted to obey it, something happened in his heart. He couldn't just not obey it, but something took over. This, this sin sprang to life. He says he deceived him and he killed him, and he didn't realize that he was completely helpless in front of sin. It awakened the desire to covet. Do not covet. Awaken the desire to covet, he says, and it went out of control. And do you know the phenomenon called desert gloom? Have you ever heard of it or seen it, maybe? You know, in some deserts, it looks like that much of the time. It looks completely dry and dead. There's no life in it whatsoever. But even in deserts like this, sometimes they get rain once a year, twice a year, and something phenomenal happens. The whole place comes alive. Actually, there was seeds of life all over the desert. It just needed that rain to awaken it back to life. And Paul is saying something like that happened in him, except what awakened in him by God's command is something really ugly. Sin sprang to life. He thought it was fine before, but when God's command came, sin, desire to sin, came to his life. We learn that that is sinfulness itself that's springing to life. That sense of rebelliousness, that, that sense of, if God says something, don't do this, you want to go, I want to do exactly that. That came to life. His famous book, Confessions. Um, St. Augustine writes at the time when he stole some pears. He didn't steal these pears out of necessity because he was hungry. He stole them. He stole them because, just because it was forbidden. Because it was not the right thing to do, he wanted to do it. This idea of don't do this sprang in him this desire to break the command. He did it simply because it was forbidden. And this is what he writes. In a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What therefore did I love in that theft of mine? In what manner did I perversely or viciously imitate my Lord? To do with impunity things bearing a shadowy likeness of their impotence. But a thing give pleasure, which is done for no other reason but because it was unlawful. Trivial thing, stealing few pairs, but he says it revealed in him something much perverse. Perversity in his heart, he says. And a desire to imitate God's omnipotence with impunity. What he means by that is he, he wants to be like God in that he doesn't want to be limited by anything. And he wants to be like God in that desire, right? Don't do this. He wants to say, actually, no one can tell me what to do. I want to be like God, not limited by any commands. That desire to break the command, to like God, he says, sprang to life. You see, sin, a God's command, reveals not just what sin is, that murder is bad or whatever, but it reveals the perversity in our heart. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve, and all from all of us, we have that desire, don't we? You know, what's the first thing that you think of when you, um, when 
your parents tell you, don't do this. Why not? I don't want to do that. I'll, don't touch it. I'll touch it if I want to. <laughs> there is that desire in us, isn't there? The, the, the desire to rebel, to, the desire just to break it because, just because somebody told us not to do it. It's that perversity to live our lives our own way and not wanting to be limited by anything. That's what's revealed by, by God's command. Sin sprang to life. Of course, again, it's not the fault of the law. The laws are good, holy and righteous, he says in verse 12. And because God's laws are holy and righteous and good, it also condemns us. It reveals the utter sinfulness of our heart, verse 13. Friends, if and when we go down to every command deep enough, it will utterly condemn us. None of it will justify us. Have you ever wondered why Paul chose the Ten Commandments here in this text? Ten Commandments do not covet as the illustration. I think it's because the other commands you could pretend to keep them. Do, do not worship other idols. Well, I don't bother about anything. Do not murder. Well, I don't murder anybody. Don't lie. I'm supposed to lie at one time. But whatever it is, these other commands are mostly you can pretend to have kept them outwardly. But the Ten Commandments do not covet. Well, it's not our heart. It's about what goes on in a place where no one else sees. It's about the, the condition of your heart. And if we go to the, to the bottom of every single commandment, who can say that we, can, we have actually kept the command in our hearts? Do not worship other idols. How many idol, idols are there in your heart right now? Do not murder. How many people have you beaten up in your mind? Have they even murdered? Uh, do not commit adultery. How many uh, adultery have you actually committed um, in your heart? Not honor your parents. Sometimes we dishonor our parents. When it comes to our hearts, we're all guilty. We have many euphemisms for sin. We say, well, just being human. We're a bit broken. We're a bit lost. Paul says, no, we're sinful. We're utterly sinful. And we need a rescue. We need a new heart. We need God's grace. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian and here with us, past is one of the reasons you don't want to commit your life to Jesus. It is one of the reasons that you just don't want to submit to anyone. You don't want to live your life in a way that God is telling you to live. If that is the case, you know, that is the thing that these laws are to reveal in your heart. That the desire not to submit to the God who made us and loves us and has given himself for us. That is what we, that's precisely what the commandments are to reveal and what we are to repent of. And secondly, if we go down to the depth of your heart, don't you see that there is helplessness there? There is sinfulness there that you cannot rescue yourself. This is what Paul has been saying throughout the Romans. And there is a righteousness revealed apart from the law. But 
faith in Jesus, His righteousness is given freely to you. Come to Him. Please turn to Him. Of course, those of us who have turned to Christ, it doesn't mean that we're free from the power of sin. However, being united to Christ actually makes us struggle, sometimes even more than others. We begin to engage in this lifelong war against sin and struggle towards holiness to become holy. If you look at the people around the world, I think people deal with sins in different ways. I don't know if you've had this experience, you know, I watch movies or TV shows or uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And podcasts are intimate medium where people say all sorts of things that are in their hearts. And one of the things that I often hear in these podcasts that I listen to, people talk, talking about their, how they lied or how they've stolen things without any shame, without any sense of guilt. Yeah, it's just something that I used to do. You know, that's how they justify it. And that's one way of living with sin. Right? Do it enough that it becomes the norm. But I think for most people, that there is a collective conscience that they cannot escape. So I think some people justify themselves, don't they? Well, I, I had to lie. My boss is telling me to lie. What, what, what option did I have? It wasn't my fault. This person seduced me. You know, if we justify our sin and our actions. We have no choice. Some people give up. They know it's bad, but they kind of go, well, I'm bad. That's how it is. You know, they know it's bad, but they've given up and given in to sin. I'm just playing that way. They don't bother fighting their conscience anymore. They just think that this is just the reality of who I am. Church, if you are a Christian, none of these are an option for you. If you are a Christian, you are united with Christ. And as we'll see next week, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Which means that you can't just give up. You can't just uh, say this is okay. You can't just justify yourself. No, the Spirit will continue to convict you. And for the rest of your life, you will engage in a struggle against sin. You will keep on fighting sin until Jesus takes you away or He comes back. And I think that's what the next section is about. Verses 14 to 25. But I can tell you that this is one of the most controversial part of the book of Romans and much ink has been spilled on this. Um, because many commentators actually think that when you look at this section, verse 14 to 25, some people think, many, many people think that this is actually still about people, your state before uh, you became a Christian. Uh, this uh, is not, this struggle isn't for the Christian, but this, it describes um, what you were like before you came to faith. There are many reasons why people uh, think this. Uh, be, uh, sorry. Yeah, one reason is because, for example, in verse 14, he says, I'm, a, I'm enslaved to sin. Well, he already said that you can free from sin, didn't he? Uh, right? And, and it also said it seems to uh, picture uh, somebody who's completely defeated, still enslaved, and who's can overcome their sins. And this cry of help in verse 24 at the end, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. It sounds like somebody who is longing for a rescue. 
longing for a salvation. Rather than something that's free from it. But I think this section still describes a struggle of a Christian. Uh, I think this for many different reasons. Um, because let me give you uh, verses 7 through 13. If you look at it, uh, everything is written in past tense. Sin killed me. Right? Uh, I, I was dead. Uh, it was, it, it's, it's past tense. But when it comes to verses 14 and on, it's in present tense. The tense switches. This struggle seems to be the struggle that Paul is experiencing right now as he's writing this letter. It's in present tense. At face value, that's the easiest way of reading it. And also, um, he says he delights, verse 22, in God's law. I mean, how many of you, how many, how many of you know non-Christians who delight in God's law? Or that pride, verse 24, I think that pride for deliverance is a cry for deliverance from his body. Once again, this is what a wretched man I am, this body that is subject to death. He's struggling, his mind has been renewed, but his body, the redemption, has not been applied to this body quite yet, not fully. And he's longing for a time when his body will be transformed in the future where his body will be matched with his mind. I think that is what he's um, asking for in verse 24. But, more than that, I think, I, I believe this, and that this is about an ongoing struggle with Christian, because it describes me. And I think it describes you, too. How many times, when you read something like verse 19, have you thought, man, that, that is about me. For I do not do the thing that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. Just like evil I'm doing. But verse 22, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. I do, but I see another law. And it's like in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's lovely. Describes me. My mind delights in God's law. Yes. But there is another power at work within me, isn't there? The sinfulness that is being engraved in me, it's still at work. But for the Christian, the inner self, at the deepest of hearts, we are renewed. Our minds delight in God's law. That is who you are. You have been united with Christ. You have been given and filled with the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that we just escape this body this habit and the fallenness of our body and this world right away in one go. No, we struggle. And we will struggle. And that struggle itself, I think, is the evidence of Jesus' resurrection power in you. Last week, all my family members um, were sick. Stomach bugged. against 
the virus. That's what a healthy body does. Fever, vomiting, diarrhea. This is what the body is supposed to do. And so he's not as worried as I am. It's a sign that his immune system is working. His body is working. That's if you are a Christian and you struggle with your sinfulness, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. That there is resurrection power and life in you. I know that some of you are disgusted with some of the things that you do and you struggle. But I know that you come to repentance and you come back to Jesus and you will not give up this fight. And that not giving up, that continued struggle is a sign that Christ is at work in you. Bishop J.C. Ryle, in his classic book of holiness, writes this, We feel anything of war in our inward man. Well, let us thank God for it. It's a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than any. Friends, what a wretched man that I am. There will be a day of deliverance. Jesus will come back and He will give us new bodies that matches our renewed mind. And that day, we will not be able to sin. That day is coming. This struggle that we have, this war that wages inside of us is a war that has already been won. won. The end is determined by our union with Jesus. And as we'll see in next chapter, chapter 8, verse 18, let me just get you there. This present struggles are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So friends, continue this fight. Continue to struggle in your, in order to, to want to be holy. And let me just conclude with a few applications then. Once again, I know that many of you are discouraged. Don't be discouraged. I mean, I should say, when you sin, I should let you know sin is terrible. Sin is bad, and we should not sin anymore. But friends, turn to Jesus. Repent and come back to Him. And as you do, that sign of God uh, at work in you. That struggle was true of St. Paul. That's true of me, and that's true of all of you. Keep fighting the fight. Now, secondly, I want to say, let's not do any pretending here. In this church, in small groups, in your Christian friendship, we all struggle with sin. Can we confess our sins to one another? Can we not put up this front as we come to church that we're all okay? That we're celebrating the amazing things that God has done in us and not the struggles that we have. Can we share that with one another? Can we encourage each other to keep going? When someone, uh, someone confesses their sin, let's not condemn, pronounce Jesus' forgiveness. Friend, you have been forgiven in Christ. And let's encourage each other to keep going and fighting this fight. Thirdly, no. That God works through sinful people. The Bible is a testament to every single character in the Bible is a testament to this. Moses was sinful, Abraham was sinful, David 
David was sinful. Solomon was sinful. Peter was sinful. Paul was sinful. I am sinful. You are sinful. And Paul calls himself a chief sinner, sinner of all sinners. And look at the ministry that Paul has done. God does amazing things to sinners who point to his power and grace. Gospel of grace shines out all the more clearly because of our sins. And that's the thing, is that throughout your life, you will again and again be surprised at how terrible you are, how sinful you are, how unable you are to overcome your sin by yourself. As you come to that realization, you will also come to this amazing grace, to this realization that you are loved beyond your imagination, that God loves you and has pled for you, that you are loved more than you thought was possible. So each week, we come. We come not just to celebrate what God has done in us, Go, what an amazing thing that God has done in me, making me a great person. That's not what we sing about each week, is it? We come to sing about God's grace. And the final song that we're going to sing is like this. Come, young and old from every land, men and women of faith, come those with full or empty hands and find the riches of His grace. Riches of His grace. Yes. Mm-hmm. 